Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of September 9th, 2019. On the show today, news, listener questions, and it's the most wonderful time of the year. Not Christmas, food and wine at Epcot. I'll go over some of the highlights, and Jim tells us a bit about what we can look forward to in future years and how this all came to be. And speaking of Jim and speaking of food, let's bring in the man who observes that honey is the tastiest of all the insect vomits we've tasted so far. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? It's kind of interesting you bring up bees because every year in the spring, we have an infestation here in southern New Hampshire of ground burrowing bees. Have you ever heard of these things? So basically miniature woodchucks. Very much so. They arrive, they dig hundreds of holes in the lawn, and I don't know, they could be vomiting down there. They're very quiet. If you want, I'll, I'll check it out. I'll get a magnifying glass, but it seems like I'm kind of violating their privacy. But Yeah, maybe a survey would be better than the magnifying there we glass. Go. Just ask them. Yeah. For new listeners, it's, it's, it's like this all the time. <laughs> very sad. All right, Jim, let's do a shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Lori S., A. Gottlieb, and Wheeler G., and longtime subscribers, Ryan P., Amy B., and Stephen E. Jim, I took a private tour of the Magic Kingdom last week and found out that these folks are the ballroom dancers you see in the dining room scene of the Haunted Mansion. We are all big, big fans of your work, people. Especially if you take into consideration the, the effect they do with the giant glass. So, in effect, they're... Pepper's Ghost? Pepper's Ghost. So, they're they're all dancing backwards, Lynn. That's the way they... Oh, play. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. So, they're so much more skilled than you, you might have realized. Amazing. Amazing, talented people, Jim. And that's that's the Disney difference right there. All right. Let's, uh, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish Podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, like I said, I was over at the Magic Kingdom this weekend, and I noticed a lot of dirt around Space Mountain, where the entrance and the pathway to the Neutron Light Cycle ride is going to be. And I understand from the concept art coming out of D23 that the design of the ride and the entranceways has changed slightly. What's going on there? <laughs> there is this train that goes through. As much as people were looking forward to this ride coming over from Shanghai, no train goes around that park. This became kind of a design challenge, and they also did some sound tests and realized ah, okay, okay. that each time the train comes through, your futuristic design goes away because suddenly this audio footprint of this 19th century steam train chugging through. What folks have been talking about or commenting about is there's suddenly a tunnel that's been added to the design, and... That's sadly not going to be all that theme. This is more about sound reduction as they pass through. It'll also help with weather, so it's a win-win. This is true. I'm now just waiting for the dome that gets placed over the Autopia cars to muffle the putt-putt-putt over there. But hey, take what you can get. One thing at a time. One mm -hmm. thing at a time. Speaking of one thing at a time, Jim, it looks like the Festival of the Arts is coming back to Epcot in 2020. You know, with all of the Epcot announcements, I, I hadn't considered what it's going to be like running a festival when much of the, the park is under construction, but apparently we're going to find out January 17th to uh, February 24th of 2020. We're going to learn so much sooner than we're that, Lynn. We're going to learn a lot about ourselves, each other, Epcot. <laughs> <laughs> this Sunday, uh, September 8th, Interventions East, I want to say, the, with the character spot and all that shuts down. And there's actually a fairly 
sizable component now of food and wine that's down in this area. The what? The earth eats the. Uh, oh, with we're going to talk about the food with fire. There's a whole bunch of stuff that's right outside. There you go. So, of that, uh, so. the, but that's not that's not going to get cha- uh, changed anytime soon. They can uh, they they got a huge buffer there. Yeah. You also have food as the incentive, and it has been proved by many psychology students with mice and cheese they will find the food <laughs> exactly they will find the food we'll talk a little bit more about food and wine that's the main segment of our of our show today and i in fact did try uh, all of those booths uh, too so we'll talk about that in a bit jim over at universal uh, because it's almost fall they've announced a third projection show for hogwarts castle and this is a port of the show that's currently at universal hollywood mm-hmm. this is the dark arts show starts i believe this week september 14th Runs for two months through November 15th. This is the, the casual projection show for Halloween for them. What's Universal thinking here? I'm actually wondering what Disney's thinking here. Because remember the show that was done over Lake Buena Vista and featuring the drones? Oh, yeah, yeah. The Christmas time thing. Right. Okay. What has made the dark arts at Hogwarts Castle so hugely popular out in Hollywood is there's an effect toward the end of the show where... You hear Harry Potter do Expecto Patronus, and he he conjures up a Patronus of a white stag, but it's a giant white stag that's formed entirely out of drones that have flown into place and suddenly illuminate over the castle. And it's stunning when it just comes straight out of the darkness. But Disney backed away from use of drones after they did the show at Lake Buena Vista because it proved to be somewhat problematic. And Here's effectively Universal doubling down. It's like bringing the successful show from Hollywood out to Florida. And it's going to be interesting to see if they do, in fact, include this stag effect uh, with the drones as part of the show. How do they get to fly drones near people? Is there some sort of waiver from the FAA? Is it, or is it far enough out that... Uh... This is the challenge, Len. In California, they can do this because the drones... In much the same way, you know, face it, at Disney World, when you're seeing the giant fireworks explode over Cinderella Castle, those are actually far to the back of property, not over areas right. where guests are actually standing. So they, for Universal, they were able to create this, at least in Hollywood, because the drones were flying over the back lot during a time of night when production wasn't happening. Okay, so they could do that, right. Okay. Yeah, in Florida... That's a different situation. So again, I'm personally going to be fascinated to see if this effect, which makes the show in Hollywood, shows up here in Orlando. I'm picturing Universal team members behind the scenes with shotguns getting ready to to knock down any rogue drone that flies by. And they're like, what was, was that a gunshot? No, fireworks, fireworks. Look over here. Look at the castle. Wow. (laughs) And for those of you who were wondering what the storyline of Terminator Dark Fate 2 was going to be, you have to thank you, Mr. Testa. There there we go. (laughs) All I I ask for is a point and a half. There you go. All right. Uh, Let's do some listener question, Jim. First up from our friend Bryant, who writes, Jim and Len, when Galaxy's Edge settles in at Hollywood Studios, will the park look to remove Star Tours? It doesn't fit in with the Batu aesthetic and could be a location for a new attraction. And do you think Star Tours could be moved into Epcot's Play Pavilion? With the space, uh, with the simulators that are there, you could bring in Star Wars to a second park and it fits in concept with the interaction with your favorite Disney character things that we talked about before. So Jim, what's a, what of Star Tours post Batu? I'm told that they want 18 months of operation 
by Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Initially, the belief was that they were going to need it because of so many people were going to turn up and, and come away disappointed because they couldn't get in. It's like, well, you still have Star Wars, you know, the adventures continue. You've still got a launch pay, right? right? Yeah, you know, that's it exactly. But but now that there's been a somewhat problematic launch, at least in Anaheim, and, and by the way, I, I, you, when we were recording earlier this week, you were mentioning that attendance wasn't quite where they wanted it to be for the first week, but let's not forget about a giant hurricane and kids back in school and all that. Did, did yeah. there been any recovery in the numbers? or uh, Not yet, no. But again, it's uh, a lot of people put off their trip because of the hurricane in Florida. Yeah. Disneyland is also still uh, lower than we uh, we projected to. So I think uh, I think a lot of this is is people waiting for a rise of the resistance. I think that and the uh, the ticket prices are combining for things. Okay, and, and one other secondary issue here, it's literally not like they can go. You know, they oh, well we'll just pull the ride film out and plug that into the simulators that are already in place backstage at the old Wonders of Life Pavilion. Dirty little secret of Disney World history is that when Wonders of Life shut down, when they needed parts for the Star Tours simulators, they would go over to Epcot and pull them off of there. And the ride film now is digitally projected. The simulators that are in place over at Epcot are the old 70 millimeter? I think technically they're moving derogatypes. That's how old they are. <laughs> oh, that's exactly. You know. Silver gelatin <laughs> slate. <laughs> On genuine, very flammable nitrate film. <laughs> this would not be a quick, easy fix. I mean, don't get me wrong. On paper, it's a brilliant idea. In Hollywood Studios, mm -hmm. conceivably, if you ever wanted to expand Batu. The Star Tours ride is close enough to it that you could sort of kind of absorb that part of Grand Avenue and make it happen. But in Disneyland, they're almost opposite ends of the park. The only problem there is in the way to get to Star Wars, the adventures continue and tattooing traders or whatever it's called these days. You have to go through, that's no longer called the Muppet Courtyard. It's Grand Avenue. Or Grand Avenue, yeah. But yeah. I'm saying you could, you could subsume a lot of Grand Avenue yeah. into Betu. And it, you, you'd basically cut Muppets mm -hmm. and Mama Melrose's off from the rest of the uh, park. So I don't know what happens to that. <laughs> but <laughs> that's, Yeah, that, that, please crawl, crawl through this hole. And just get, the Muppets are right on the other side. I think a, a tunnel within a tunnel. There we go. Let's move on to a question from our pal Michael. Mm -hmm. Recently, I was turned away from Hagrid's magical creatures after waiting three and a half hours in the heat. When I got to the loading area, the team member said that I was too tall for the attraction. Needless to say, I was very angry and disappointed. Weight wasn't the issue. It's height. I'm 6'3". My question is, is Universal doing anything to correct the situation so that taller guests like myself can ride? And so, Jim, I read Michael's letter the first time. I'm like, well, 6'3 is not that tall. It's not like he's 7'4". The ride can handle people who are 6'3"? I'm kind of startled that this is a, a fairly lengthy queue, and they have people standing out front to direct people to the sample chairs for the, the sidecar and the motorcycle. And yeah. it's like, I find it hard to believe that, you know, a guy who's 6'3", could have slipped through without having been seen. It, shouldn't there be a procedure? I mean, clearly this thing has been operating since what may june this can't be new news like oh my god do we tall guys we can't put them on this yeah they have to have known this right yeah so this for somebody who've been in line for three and a half hours and only at the loading area be told this that's i, I mean i'm sorry that border is inexcusable i do hope that he headed over to guest relations and had a chat with the folks there 
Universal, the first summer of Harry Potter and Forbidden Journey, uh, 2010. You know, they did run into the fact that the, the flying benches weren't exactly fat-friendly. And I, I say that as a guy who genuinely sweated that. I was told by well, folks in Universal Creative that spring, by the way, you know, maybe have a salad. <laughs> like you want to ride, you yeah. got to start dieting six weeks out. There we go. I was. <laughs> it's I more actually than a ride. did it's, like. it's a lifestyle. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Here's your ticket. Here's your cholesterol test. Let's, let's, <laughs> that's let's, that's let's, exactly. Let's. You know, but yeah, what they eventually did is took the the benches at the extremes to the left and the right and made them wider and, and more fat friendly. But geez, height. Yeah, height. Yeah, this is a new rink. All right, tell you what, uh, Michael. I promise I'll reach out to folks at Universal Creative and find out uh, a what the deal is here because what is the height limit? Yeah, and. After a summer of operation, are they doing a forbidden journey? Are they circling back on their ride system and trying to figure out, well, how do we make this that much more friendly for those folks who are a bit on the tall side? All right. Thanks for doing that, Jim. And uh, you'll report back to us, right? Yep. 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 All right. Cool. All right. So one of, more, one of the most interesting questions we've got in a long time comes from our buddy, Bethany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she starts off by saying, by saying, it's an odd question. Uh, Bethany writes, you mentioned in the Atlantean Encounter podcast, that the submarines for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea had to be decommissioned by the Navy because they were Navy vessels. Additionally, I've found information stating that Walt Disney World had the eighth largest submarine fleet in the world. On the other hand, I found other things saying that the submarines were actually boats and that a retired admiral was involved, so there were no there was no actual naval jurisdiction. I'm wondering what the truth is. And she goes on to say, because I was like, who cares, right? <laughs> why, 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 why? I mean, we get a lot of questions, right? But mm-hmm. anyway, she said, um, I'm asking because I work in an area called export control compliance, which covers items that the government considers a potential national security threat. And it's extremely broad in what it includes. For example, laptops are controlled. And Bethany points out, Navy submarines, as you can imagine, are controlled at an extremely high level as to opposed to boats and other submersibles. And she's putting together a podcast about all of this. And she's looking to add some some flavor around the less dry parts of the subject. So uh, if you have any information or resources or any other additional information on it, she wants to know what we can uh, uh, what we can add to this. And Jim, I understand you've got a separate copy of this email. You got a copy of this email, and you've actually did some work on this. Yes, in fact, I've been apologizing to Bethany because I've been backseat driving in a lot of our emails, suggesting places she could reach out to and and things she could possibly pursue and and what happened here and how it impacted Disneyland Park really sort of goes all the way back to 1959 when the the, the subs initially opened at Disneyland and then Vice President Richard M. Nixon showing off to his friend Walt Disney. Nixon and his daughter, you know, his wife Pat and his daughters Julie and Tricia they would come to Disneyland if Walt opened an envelope. You know, it just sort of like... <laughs> I mean, if you had a chance to be friends with Walt, you, yeah. you, you take it, right? You take it. All right. All so, right. you know, Nixon finds out that Walt is opening this submarine voyage-based attraction. And it's like... Okay. And knows that, you know, that the key to sort of... When you're doing this sort of thing is publicity. Nixon goes sort of like, well, wouldn't it be cool if 
I could arrange for a real admiral to come out and commission your subs for your theme park. And Walt was like, Oop. "Is he? Is he? He's in government. Is he vice president at this time?" He is actually the vice president of the United States under you know, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower. Okay, so right. he calls right. the Pentagon, and sure enough, you know, a a naval officer gets on a plane, flies out to California. They have a formal commissioning ceremony, which of course. They end up, Disney includes in all of the press releases and for the opening. But again, now the problem, we jump ahead to 1998, where they're shutting down the subs. You know, it was, we got into the Atlantean Encounter story. You know, there was this brawl back and forth between Disneyland's operations staff that felt the subs were so expensive and difficult to operate, and the Imagineers who felt, well, you can't take this out of the park. You have to, you know, this is a classic Disneyland attraction that Walt himself had a hand in, and let's find a new theme and that sort of thing. So in the end, the Imagineers lose, but September 9th, 1998, word gets back to the Pentagon, get her to the effect of Disneyland is closing the subs, and suddenly the Navy reaches out to Disneyland. Oh, by the way, we're going to have to send an admiral there. And it's like, what? <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> well, you commissioned them. How does that initial phone call go? <laughs> like, you're sitting at your desk in Anaheim, <laughs> and the Navy calls and said, understand you got some surplus naval vessels. We need to talk to you about them. Could you imagine the memo that had to go to Eisner? <sighs> Dear Mike, <laughs> come on. Our buddy Arthur Levine over at USA Today actually wrote Arthur. A, yes, actually right. wrote a story about this in 2007, and he, he's interviewed Tony Baxter about this. And here's All a right. quote: "The ride closed in September of 1998. Baxter says he has vivid memories of this infamous day with a flourish of pomp. Even if the circumstances were difficult, Disneyland brought in a military band and an admiral to who officially decommissioned the boats." The then president of Disneyland, Paul Pressler, uh, cornered Baxter, asking him if he thought the event was exciting. And Tony said, I'm sorry, this is one of the worst days of my life. Yeah. Beth and I, and I were trying to pin down the name of the Admiral. And we pinned down approximate time frame when the attraction closed. It was June 23rd, 2007, between there and the 29th of that month. And we've got another little chunk of the puzzle here. From Kevin Rafferty's new book, in fact, the one we talked about earlier, uh, Magic Journeys, when they went to open the new version of the subs, the Finding Nemo submarine voyage, Kevin talks mm -hmm. about two weeks out. I received a call from Bob Iger's office, and Bob had invited the admiral of the... Uh, <laughs> Don't do this. We've done this before. Don't do this. <laughs> so, no, that's it exactly. So uh, anyway, <laughs> instead of helping Bethany, I have made her life so much more complicated because I introduced her to, to this field full of rabbit holes. And the last time I heard from her was the 14th of last month, Len, and I, I think that the poor woman is face down in, in a computer somewhere, you know, chasing the name I, of that admiral. The funny thing to me is, I mean, obviously it's a great story, but the funny thing to me is that given the way that things operated in the 50s, I'm not sure that every I was dotted and T was crossed. Mm -hmm. And you know how the government works. I mean, things, things have to be done in a certain way to a certain standard. I think there are probably people in the Navy export control who maybe picked up this form and looked at it and said, I'm not entirely sure this form is complete or accurate. I don't know that I want to get involved. <laughs> so, <laughs> bottom of the pile. <laughs> 
to be honest, I picture it in a filing cabinet that's somewhere in that building where they hid the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> exactly. You know, we'll, we'll get to this at some point. And here's the funny part to me, and I was just thinking about this. If they ever wanted to sell the subs or move the subs to Japan, mm-hmm. could you imagine the paperwork that would be involved oh, in that now? Don't even <laughs> They'd be like, you know, we're just going to put them on a truck in the middle of the night. We're just going <laughs> to. What subs? I have no idea what you're talking about. What? What? These are, these are toys. Yeah. All right, Jim, uh, speaking of uh, unusual emails, we got one more from a friend who prefers to remain anonymous. And it starts like this. I just had a bizarre experience. Universal Studios Hollywood invited me to take a, a lengthy, convoluted online survey, which mostly involved mix and match scenarios along the lines of, if Disneyland costs this much and Universal costs that much, which would you pick? So, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, he says Disney's, uh, or she says, uh, Disney's testing how high their price can go. That's not surprising. What is surprising is about halfway through the survey, and there were probably about 20 different scenarios, one of the questions was whether you would consider paying separately for the tram tour at Universal Studios Hollywood. Now, remember, the, the tram tour is sort of like the signature attraction mm-hmm. for Universal Studios Hollywood. So separating it out from everything else is a big change. So let me go through the questions here. So imagine two lists side by side. One that says Universal Studios Hollywood tickets cost this much for one day and this much for two days and this much for season passes. And then the comparable Disneyland ticket, you know, one day, two day, annual pass and so on, cost this much. And along with this is a, uh, is a calendar showing you which days are like regular attendance days, value days, and peak days, you know, how, how Disneyland um, oh, sure. prices yeah. their, their seasonal tickets. So, Jim, what's, uh, what's, what's Universal thinking here? This survey was in the works before Galaxy's Edge hit in Anaheim. So, right. I make the parallel between, remember when Isles Adventure opened in May of 1999 and, and we had heard about Disney's plans to put four major attractions in each of its theme parks in Florida to, you know, sort of boost, to give an artificial reason for people to go back to Disney because, you know, they perceived islands potentially as a huge threat. And when that didn't happen because of the whole Universal Escape rebranding thing, Disney was like, okay, you know, we, we don't need to do a fire mountain or all of this. Yeah, we're not, we don't need to spend, uh, you know, $500 million in each park to, uh, yeah. The interesting thing about what they're talking about with the tram tour is there have been, in a weird sort of way, it's kind of Disneyland Park revisited. There is only so much land at Universal City in Hollywood to develop, and it's mm-hmm. still a working studio. And if the tram tour were to go away, I mean, as the big, giant glamour tram, you know, from 64... The thing of making it into a separate upcharge is you could basically sort of reinvent the VIP tour that they do there now where people are. Yes, yeah, so let's be clear. They're not saying it's going to go away. No. They're thinking they want to charge separately for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, like every other modern theme park, it's uh, one price for admission and mm-hmm. you get to write everything. So much of the tram tour is dated. In fact, you can go online right now. And watch, I think it's they did it in three parts, but there's a video that they did. In fact, it was the guys who did South Park, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, about the Seagram difference, about Seagram had just bought Universal and how they were going to improve the theme park. And there's this amazing shot. It's actually, it's Jeffrey Katzenberg, a former head of Disney Animation, sitting on the tram tour 
as the rubber shark is jumping out of the water and pretending to bite tourists. And he's just, they deliberately have him on the tram looking as bored as possible. Len, this is, you know, that's back from the late 90s, early 2000s. So even then, they admitted the tram tour, you know, was terrible. And in fact, Len, at some point, you have to watch the Seagram video just for the fact that the way that Matt and Trey explained how Seagram's was going to make everything better at Universal is, you know, you'd see like a guard in a shack controlling access to it and from the lot. There'd be this magical effect, and first somebody would place a ceramic deer in front of the guard shack, and then they'd hand him a wine cooler. <laughs> and that was literally the solution to every problem at Universal. You know, it was just sort of like, okay, we're going to fix this. Here's your ceramic deer. Here's your wine cooler. It's, it's a wonderfully funny video, but even back then, the tram tour was a snooze, and it kind of still is a snooze because filmmaking has changed. Right. That's, it's much more digital now. Oh, no, that's it. Exactly. When you're rolling through, for example, what is it? Five Corners, uh, the, the Western Center at Universal. And it's mm-hmm. this was wonderful in the 60s and 70s when they were still shooting Westerns. But now it's it's a bunch of buildings that basically are standing in place because the, the, the termites are holding hands. <laughs> Speaking of old movies, Jim, I'm going to I'm gonna segue here for a second. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with Disney. I was in Las Vegas with Laurel mm-hmm. a couple weeks ago, and we were going through the casino, and we don't gamble, right? We were there sort of for the, the architecture and the, the, the spectacle and the, and the food. Mm-hmm. But we were walking through the casinos, and one of the things that we like to do when we go through the casinos is find the slot machine with the most offensive theme. <laughs> Right. Wow. So, so like something that uh, plays on a stereotype of like Native Americans or whatever, and just say, you know, oh my God, this is the worst. Mm-hmm. Right. And I thought to myself, if I ever meet Mel Brooks and I get to ask him one question, my question is going to be, Mr. Brooks, you, you get to design a slot machine with the most politically incorrect theme you can. What's the theme of the slot machine? Mm. <laughs> it's brilliant question. Brilliant question. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Did you see where, where Brooks was actually in New York? Did a residency at a, a theater there for like two and three nights, and and just no, of, I didn't see it. We didn't get down to the city because it was in the middle of Nancy's recovery from her back surgery. But he basically sat on stage, and it was a retrospective of his work and him taking questions from the audience. And oh, Len, I had paid good money for you to have, be able to ask him that question at that point. If he, if he comes back, if he comes back, okay. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the food and wine booths, which opened up back on August 29th and which I had uh, started to sample and continue to sample. The next segment will be brought to you by Crestor. (laughs) We'll be right back. (laughs) All right, it could be Plavix, too. It could be any sort of uh, the statins. Just, uh, I think they should hand them out in little Dixie cups as you walk in, like... Here's your cholesterol-lowering medication. I was thinking the more to the, the stain remover. Oh, right? Like a, like a shout gel? There we go. That's it exactly. I mean, cause I, oh, could you imagine the, the, the possibilities? Like you take a areas in Future World and you're like, oh, you've got barbecue sauce on from Flavors from Fire. Come over here. Some shout gel. And then they throw it in the washing machine. And an hour later, you come back and it's perfectly clean. Oh. Ah. Genius. That check goes to Len Testa. So August 29th, I started off at uh, Food and Wine. By the way, so here's my August 29th. I woke up at 3-something in the morning. Mm-hmm. I went to Galaxy's Edge for the opening. And we've, we've talked about that on a previous show. But mm-hmm. around, and my plan was around, you know, 10 a.m. to go home and take a nap. Mm-hmm. 
But around 9.30, I got a call from my sister, Christina, who we've had on the show. And she said, hey, I'm heading over to Food & Wine to start doing the rounds of all the new things. Why don't you come along? And I was like, I'm really tired and I'm not sure I want to do it. And she's like, well, but, you know, Aaron and Angela from the podcast are going to be there. And we've got other people there. And some of our liner friends, some of the people from Touring Plans, some of the users are there, mm -hmm. including one of them who's a professional chef. Ooh. So I figured, okay, you've got me. And also, I want to add, it was also the 10-year anniversary of La Cava del Tequila. The Mexico Pavilion, once they threw that in, I, I had to go. Okay. So I show up at 11 o'clock, and it's basically dinner time for me mm -hmm. at 11, and I haven't eaten that day. So anything you put in front of me probably was going to be good as far as I'm concerned. But I, um, I started off, actually, in Future World. The closest food and wine thing to the front gate is the chocolate experience over at the Land Pavilion. Oh, the, from the bean to the bar? Or? Bean to bar, right, from bean to bar. And this is the uh, this is Giardelli Chocolate mm. uh, sponsoring the exhibit. And it's in the um, it's in where uh, the Awesome Planet movie is going to go, oh. where the old uh, Timon and Pumbaa film was. You walk in, and they give you a piece of Giardelli dark chocolate, little square, mm -hmm. which is great because free food. Who doesn't love that okay. at Food and Wine? And then it's a really small sort of like room-sized Exhibit sort of the history of chocolate, you know, how it, how it gets produced from bean to, you know, to finished product. Lots of Giardelli stuff that you can buy, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the main thing there is a, uh, is a drinking chocolate. It's a small cup of warm chocolate. It's sort of like a very rich hot cocoa. I think it's under $4 too for the small mm -hmm. cup, which in the normal scheme of things, Jim, that would be the perfect way to start food and wine. It's relatively inexpensive. Who doesn't like chocolate? It's in the the land pavilion, which has sort of a food theme to it. Mm -hmm. It all sort of works together. Here, here's the here's the problem. It was 90 degrees in Florida when I tried this, and I had already been up since three and moving around. And let, let me just say, in terms of my tasting notes for this, mm -hmm. my tasting notes for the drinking chocolate consist of the following note: the smell of sweat does nothing to enhance the flavor of chocolate. <laughs> nothing at all, Jim. Nothing at all. <laughs> I think it was 94 Ugh. on the day. And it's a drinking warm chocolate. It's like basically drinking lava. Yeah. I don't want any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It was fine for what it is. Everyone was super friendly. There was really good air conditioning in there. But still, you know how like sometimes you sweat so much that you can smell yourself? Yes. And you're like, my God, if I smell myself and I'm offensive to my, I'm offensive to me, mm -hmm. imagine what other people are thinking of me right now. It was like that for me all day. Mm -hmm. so, so a couple of things we, uh, we were interested in. There are uh, actually a couple of new booths coming in. Uh, two are in and two are opening soon. The two new ones are the Alps. Okay. So this one's over by Norway. Is that correct? Or? I, believe it, I believe it is. Okay. And then uh, Appleseed Orchard, which I didn't make it to. Okay. That one, as I understand it, is over by Canada. Nope. Didn't make it that far. Didn't make it that far. Mm -hmm. And then there are two that are opening October 1st. That's the Donut Box. Mm -hmm. Which isn't new. And then Test Track Cool Wash, which is reopening hmm. on October 1st. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about those in a second. But the, um, the first one that I tried, like, this is a fairly large group uh, that was there, was uh, Flavors from Fire. And this is, uh, this is in Future World West, sort of behind Club Cool. It's a holdover from at least last year. They've got four main things there. We tried all four. They've got a Steakhouse Blended Burger, which is blended beef and mushroom slider with brie cheese fondue arugula, and a truffle and blue cheese potato chip on a brioche bun. They've also got smoked corned beef with crispy potatoes, a charred chimichurri skirt steak on a smoked corn cake, and then chocolate picante, which is it's a mousse, a dark chocolate mousse, with cayenne pepper, paprika, and mango lime compote. So let me start with that. Mm -hmm. Chocolate picante was indeed chocolate and spicy. 
I mean, the, the two flavors were literally dark chocolate and cayenne pepper. It, it is exactly what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It was good. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I liked it quite a bit. The, uh, the first thing you taste is the dark chocolate. Then you taste the cayenne pepper. I would definitely have alcohol with this to sort of cut the heat mm-hmm. with the cayenne pepper. I would say it was, it wasn't super hot. Like it wasn't painful, but it was definitely spicy enough that, you know, you had eaten cayenne pepper. It wasn't unpleasant. But it was more pronounced in terms of heat than than possibly I think some people would expect. But I really liked it. Okay. Steakhouse blended burger was delicious. Mm-hmm. The brie cheese fondue was great. The arugula, I love arugula on a, on a burger. And the truffle and the blue cheese potato chip was uh, was very well done. It was actually even crispy, even in the Florida humidity. So that was good. Mm. Smoked corned beef, same as last year. Mm-hmm. I thought it was okay. Chimichurri skirt steak, again, fine. But I really like... Flavors from fire. I like the idea of doing sort of barbecuey things mm-hmm. in Future World. And the other thing too is this was super crowded. Like this is definitely one of the booths that people were lining up for when it opened at 11. It's literally almost the first booth you encounter as you come into Epcot. Yeah. If you're walking outside, it's the first, I think it's the first outside thing. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's the thing that I think, think was interesting, Jim. When we were getting in line and we we're like maybe, you know, 30th in line mm-hmm. for a food and fire, there's a cast member who actually walked out and said, we're only accepting cash at this point. Mm-hmm. Like the the magic bands weren't working, credit card readers weren't working. And, and again, I know it, it's a it's a big operation, mm-hmm. and lots of moving parts and lots of stuff can go wrong. But the first thing I always think of when this happened is: was today a surprise to anyone at Disney? <laughs> like, did we did we not know that this was going to happen? I've, I've told you my my experience at vegan markets in Brooklyn. Right. Mm-hmm. This was one of those things. Like, did you know ahead of time that you were going to take money for this? If so, what was the what was the plan? Like, I just want to again, not the cast member's fault, and these things happen. But it was, it just always amazes me, especially again being the first booth to your point, close to uh, close to the entrance. Anyway, okay, uh, that's j- fine. J- just a little background here about what you were dealing with there. Remember, across the way, this is the first day of Galaxy's Edge. I, yeah, th- there were other priors. I understand. I understand. All the IT guys, you know, who you know normally would have been on tap to handle. Yeah. Good point. I didn't. Uh, I didn't actually consider that. That's a good point. Fair enough. The uh, the next place that we tried uh, right next to it is Earth Eats. Mm-hmm. This is hosted by Impossible Foods. So as you can imagine, the Impossible Burger slider was oh, there. Okay. I've had so I've had Impossible Burgers a number of times. Mm-hmm. The original one that was came out a few years ago, I thought was a, a very good approximation uh, of an actual hamburger. Then they came out with Impossible Two earlier this year, and I had one in Manhattan. Uh, ironically, with bacon and cheese, but I couldn't tell the difference between that and a regular hamburger. This is the same thing. The Impossible Burger Slider had a wasabi cream on it with spicy Asian slaw as the topping on a sesame seed bun. Absolutely delicious. Hmm. Cooked perfectly. It actually, and in, in, in this version of the Impossible Burger, you could. It actually looks when you bite inside it that the the quote meat looks a little red and pink mm-hmm. on the inside, like it's medium done. Really good nothing wrong with it. In fact, if you would have flipped for me, if you would have told me that the Impossible Burger was the Steakhouse Blended Burger and the Steakhouse Blended Burger was the Impossible, I, I would have believed you. I literally can't tell the difference between the two. Uh, Alice and I did the Burger King version last week. Or oh, week? right. The Impossible Whopper. Yeah. Yeah. And That's a mouthful. It was so hard to tell that it, it was a veggie burger. They Really, really good job. Yeah. The thing for me about doing plant-based proteins like that is – if you overcook them, mm-hmm. there's like a fine line between done and ruined. Mm-hmm. But this was perfectly prepared. Like the the cast members who were cooking these things were spot on, really good. The other thing we tried over there was the Impossible Cottage Pie, which is impossible ground meat 
with carrots, mushrooms, and peas, topped with mashed cauliflower, white beans, and mozzarella. I'm not a huge fan of cauliflower. Mm-hmm. And you know my feelings, Jim, about wet and dry food touching. <laughs> Okay. Why yes? So for for for, <laughs> for new listeners, right? My version of kosher is this: wet food and dry food cannot touch. And when I say that that it can't touch, I mean in the past I've actually bought metal serving trays from prisons to serve Thanksgiving dinner because gravy can't touch turkey unless it's unless there's a dipping sauce. Like that, I, I believe in it that strongly. So for me. Eating a cottage pie is 15 minutes of me mentally preparing for everything touching and then 30 seconds of eating it, right? But I have some issues. I understand, Mm. right? I'm working my way through them. Okay. It's fine. It was delicious. It was really good. good. I don't even like cauliflower all that much. Mm -hmm. But the white beans, I think, the white beans, cauliflower, and mozzarella Mm -hmm. made it taste like mashed potatoes to me. Like if you would have told me this is basically ground beef, with mushrooms, peas, carrots, and mashed potatoes, I would have believed you. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I ate it. It was good. I don't know that I would have eaten like a, a larger serving of it. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like, um, you know, like those mini pies that you get that are maybe like three inches across. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was like one of those tins. Okay. But super delicious. Really, really good. Also, 94 degrees outside. I don't know how much cottage pie I want to eat when it's 94 degrees. Cottage pie in Florida, you know, that's cruel and unusual. But, but again, I'm, I'm glad... You know, they were able to get the textures and the flavor profiles right. That's really something. Yeah, that would that was really good. Also in Future World West is Coastal Eats. Mm-hmm. The thing we tried there would be the lump crab cakes with uh, Napa cabbage slaw and avocado lemongrass cream. Very good. Mm-hmm. Decent-sized crab cakes. I think the price was somewhere between 5 and $6. Tasty. The thing that I, at this point, though, that I realized was that I've had basically bites of two burgers, a cottage pie, and lump crab cakes, and I needed something to drink with that. So what I would say is if you're going to do this, mm-hmm. get your drink first oh. and a nice cold beer would have gone really well mm-hmm. at that time. I was driving, so I couldn't drink, mm-hmm. but that's definitely what I, what I would have done. Excellent suggestion. So rather than go through all of these, we went through cheese studio. We went through wine and dine studio, refreshment port, Thailand, islands of the Caribbean. I'm going to go over some, some highlights mm-hmm. and some lowlights here. Okay. The things I liked India has a booth mm-hmm. and that is over by near China. Mm-hmm. And we tried all three things there. They had a, a warm Indian bread sampler, so naan, basically, mm-hmm. with uh, a pickled ginger dip, a mango salsa dip, and a coriander pesto. So if you've been to Sanaa, yeah. right, Jim? Yeah. It's a, Great and you know they have like a mm-hmm. bread service with nine different, different things. This is it, but a miniature version of it. It's, I think it's a few dollars. I think it's like four bucks, four dollars and change. Mm-hmm. The first thing I tried was the pickled garlic. And Jim, when I say pickled garlic, I mean pickled garlic, bold pickled garlic flavor. Like you have to be really good friends Mm -hmm. with whoever you're walking around with for the rest of the day because there's garlic in your future. Wow. But really well prepared, Mm -hmm. really flavorful. Coriander pesto dip was, uh, coriander pesto dip was great. Bold flavors, Mm -hmm. lots of coriander in it. I liked it a lot. Mango salsa was sweet. I'm not a huge fan of mango salsa in general, mm-hmm. but in ter- but for the other two, it's it sort of a good compliment. I like that. I like that. The, uh, the other thing that we tried, Madras red curry with roasted cauliflower, baby carrots, chickpeas, and Uncle Ben's basmati rice. I did not know, Jim, that Uncle Ben was Indian. <laughs> Little known fact, one. The reason why I mention this is that it's uh, both vegan and gluten-free, mm-hmm. and I want to contrast it with the spicy Kenyan vegan githeri that we had in Africa. Mm-hmm. 
this was okay. I mean, it was definitely first bite that you eat. You can definitely tell that it's curry. It was not as bold in terms of flavoring as I expected, either based on the warm Indian bread that we had just had, or, you know, typically what you're used to in, in Indian food. I'm not going to say it was plain, but it wasn't, it didn't have the flavor profile that you would expect from from Indian food. The korma chicken, sort of same thing. It's, it's basically butter chicken, mm-hmm. not very spicy at all. Shredded chicken, sort of in a cucumber, tomato salad uh, sauce with almonds, cashews, and, uh, and, and naan bread. Given what you described for the eating to the red curry, I thought, oh, that's going to be great. And it just kind of disappointing to hear that it missed the mark. Likewise, the, the korma chicken. So somehow this, uh, this conversation has turned on a vegan theme. I want to point out that uh, in the Africa Pavilion, mm-hmm. which is you know between uh, China and Germany, mm-hmm. they do a spicy Kenyan vegan githeri with white beans, pigeon peas, curry rice pilaf, and kachumambari slaw. Even if it's vegan, and it is, mm-hmm. I think it's the best thing that I had all day. It is, when they say spicy, they mean more like a peppery spicy, not a, you know, oh my God, my, my mouth is on fire mm-hmm. spicy. It was delicious. One of the best curries I've had in a very long time. I would love to see this on a menu somewhere in Walt Disney World. Like instead of getting like a, you know, a small cup of it, mm-hmm. I could make it into sort of a, a lunch or something. I think that would be delicious. Best thing that we tried all day. Wow. Okay. And granted, we didn't get to the, the we didn't get to the sort of the the west side of, mm-hmm. uh, of World Showcase. Sort of, we stopped after the United States. Mm-hmm. But yeah, really, really good. Spicy Kenyan vegan githeri. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you, if you didn't tell me it was vegan, I wouldn't have believed it. Absolutely fine. The other thing that we tried, and we'll end on this, is I, I don't normally go to Italy mm-hmm. for food and wine because normally for the, for a long time, for many years, I didn't go to it because I thought. I know Italian food. I can get Italian food anywhere. Mm-hmm. This is not going to be any different. But I went last year mm-hmm. and I got the ravioli and I got the chicken. And it, they were both very good. And I think I had the cannoli too. Mm-hmm. So I tried it again this year. And I didn't stand in this line because I was at this point dying mm-hmm. from the heat. So uh, so somebody stood in line for us. And they came back with a cannoli that they said was vegan. And I'm not entirely sure it's vegan. Mm-hmm. But that's what – or maybe I misremembered or misheard it. But it was delicious. So the, t- the thing with the cannoli – Actually, there's two parts to it. There's the filling, mm-hmm. which is ricotta cheese, uh, sweetened with uh, with chocolate chips in it. It was fabulous. But the other thing with the cannoli is you've got to keep the shell crunchy. Mm-hmm. And in Florida, oh. with humidity, no. yeah. that's a challenge, mm-hmm. but they managed to do it. So this one was the uh, sweetened ricotta cheese. It had uh, chocolate chips in it and then it had candied orange. The shell was crunchy. It's a It's like half a cannoli. Mm-hmm. So it's a mini miniature cannoli, maybe like as long as your pointer finger, mm-hmm. but delicious. It was, uh, it's a great dessert. I didn't try the other things. I didn't try the chicken this year. I didn't try the ravioli. They look the same as last year. Oh, I okay. I have to tell you, you may have missed something significant. Friends were just raving about the ravioli carbonara. Oh, really? What did they like about it? The problem is that they started talking and then the amount of saliva that was pouring out of their mouth made it difficult to get the details lined. I, I, <laughs> Your mind wanders. Yeah. So here's, here's, the, here's the other problem. Like we were going to go back for it, mm-hmm. but there was only one cash register working in Italy mm-hmm. when we were, and I think we waited like 20 minutes to order it, and I just wasn't going to get back in line oh, yeah. for the, again, sweating, mm-hmm. not, you know, not willing to do it. And I think that that prevented us from doing it. But, uh, but yeah, it does look good. Although again, Jim, 94 degrees. Mm-hmm. Parmesan, pecorino cheese, egg yolk, cream, and bacon. 
we remember when, when we were talking about Alfredo's, and, you know, the fact that they put <laughs> the defibrillators, you know, within 100 yards in both directions. Happy Italian food, humidity, Florida. Let me close that vein for you. You don't really need that. <laughs> they just they just ask you ahead of time. Sir, in order to, uh, to order this, I need you to spend three minutes on this treadmill. <laughs> on the upside here, you went on day one. This yeah. year is the longest food and wine Disney has ever done. 87 days. This thing is running to November 23rd. It's actually pushing out the festival. Of the, the holiday Hol- festival that's coming right after. Yeah. It. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, uh, look, last year, festival got underway on the 18th. The, the first uh, candlelight procession that happened on the 22nd. This year, the start of both the festival of holidays and the candlelight processional pushed all the way back to November 29th. So you'll have plenty of opportunities and the annual pass holder incentive, the the notion of if you go four times, you get your mini coasters for free. Uh, yep. So you'll be back. Oh yeah, going back in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, I'll definitely be back when the donut box opens on October 1st. Okay. That uh, They've got a strawberry dusted yeast donut hole offering that looks mm-hmm. delicious. Also, again, keeping to the vegan theme, a vegan strawberry smoothie, which... I don't know why you need uh, a, a strawberry smoothie to be anything other than vegan, but yeah, I'm excited to try that. Also, a Boston cream donut ale. Get a hoke. Military te- intelligence are two words that are not supposed to be together. A <laughs> Boston cream donut ale. All right, that ale. One word too many, Glenn. Yeah, <laughs> like where's the comma go in this uh, in, in this uh, in this sentence? <sighs> but anyway, if our listeners have uh, been to Food and Wine, send us a list of things that you tried that were delicious, send us a uh, reader comments and then we will read them on the air. And if there's something you think we should try, let us know. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. If you still want more, head on over to DisneyDish.bandcamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. who will be the starting goaltender next week for the Blainville Boisbriand Armada in their opening of the Quebec major junior hockey league season against the Royan Naranda Huskies. Go Huskies! <laughs> While you're waiting for Aaron, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. Forgiveness is Len. I'll see you on the next show. <laughs>